This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Hey guys, welcome to the Armchair Explorer, where the world's greatest adventurers tell their best story from the road. My name's Aaron Miller. I'm a travel writer. And this episode, we are going to have some fun. We're going to have a proper laugh. Our guest today is journalist and travel writer, Simon Parker. He's done a lot of incredible adventures in his life, including sailing and cycling 15,000 miles from China to London, which involved a grueling four weeks across the Pacific in a racing yacht where he lost 22 pounds due to nonstop seasickness. That would have been me. It sounds absolutely awful. So he's no stranger to big adventures. He's no stranger to doing crazy things. But without a doubt, the craziest thing he's ever done is drive a rickshaw across the entire length of India. You heard that right. And that is where we're going now. Are you ready to have some fun? Let's go. A rickshaw, if you're not familiar with them, is a common mode of transport in India and elsewhere around Asia. And it's basically like a three-wheel moped with a roof on it. It is perhaps the most unsuitable vehicle for any long-distance trip, let alone two and a half thousand miles across India, which has some of the most dangerous roads on the planet. And I can personally attest to that. But that's also what makes this story so awesome. Simon was taking part in something called the Rickshaw Run, which was set up by a company called The Adventurists. I had never heard of them prior to speaking to Simon, but they are my new favorite adventure travel company because they are absolutely and completely bonkers. They describe themselves as purveyors of chaos and inventors of adventures. And oh my God, have they invented some crazy ass adventures, including, but not limited to, a 10,000 mile Mongol rally in a scrapyard 1,000cc car, an insane build your own outrigger canoe race across the spice islands of Tanzania called the Kraken Cup, and my personal favorite, you must truly have a death wish if you want to do this one, an air race in this crazy giant fan-powered paraglider which they called the Icarus Trophy. The Icarus Trophy, named after the guy who fell out of the sky and died. So there's a clue. But underneath this madness is a really important message about what adventure really means. And that's also what this story is really about. So often we experience adventure in a kind of pre-packaged way, sanitized down. And there's nothing wrong with that. But real adventure, true adventure, at least according to these guys, is about jumping into the unknown. It's about taking risks. It's about challenging yourself. It's about getting into trouble and figuring it out. It's about all those unplanned things. And I think we need more of that kind of adventure in our lives today, don't we? So I absolutely love these guys. And if you want to find out more about them, just head to theadventurists.com. So we're about to take off. But before we do, and super quickly, thank you to everyone who's been listening and supporting the show. It means so much to me. Uh, And thank you for helping to grow this community. I started this podcast because I really wanted to spread a message about love for the outdoors, for the natural world, love for exploring and discovering other cultures, and just the love for being on this incredible, amazing planet of ours. If you share those values, if you believe in that message too, then please 
spread the word. You can follow me on social media at Aaron M. Writer for Instagram and Twitter. That's double A-R-O-N-M Writer. And at Armchair Explorer Podcast for Facebook. I'd also love it if you'd head over to armchair-explorer.com where you can find lots of background information, photographs and more on each episode as well as book trips inspired by the show. This is pretty cool. This is new. I'm setting up an adventure travel agency, an adventure agency where I can personally help you plan and book your next ultimate dream trip. So if that sounds like fun, please do reach out and I will work with you one-on-one to make that next big adventure the most awesome, coolest, most sustainable, positive and life-enhancing adventure it can possibly be. But don't worry about all that just yet, because the engines are revving and we are about to go on one crazy ride. But before we do, let's meet Simon. I grew up in a small hamlet, a small village. We didn't have a pub, we didn't have a shop. All we had, the only connection we had with the outside world was a post box. And I remember growing up in this place as a teenager and I was becoming so frustrated and bored about living there that by the time I reached the age of 18, this pressure cooker had just built up inside of me and I was so desperate to explore the planet. So when I was 18, I worked part-time in my local shop until I had just enough money to buy a one-way ticket to New Zealand. I headed off to the other side of the world to New Zealand and I hitchhiked from one end of New Zealand all the way to the other and then from one side of Australia all the way to the other. I learned how to fish and I learned how to camp and I used to basically just you know, wild camp on epic beaches before wild camping was super trendy. And I just bought a tent and just hitchhiked around. I had hardly any money, but it is at a point in my life when I realized that actually I didn't really need a lot of money to enjoy all the best things in life. You know, it's that old mantra, that old cliche, the best things in life are free. And these big, epic, empty beaches, looking at a night sky with no light pollution, being able to eat fresh crab or lobster that costs just a few dollars. Money just cannot buy those experiences. And it finally dawned on me that that was a lifestyle which I had to turn into my everyday life. But I do think I am at my most comfortable when I'm a little bit damp and a little bit sleep deprived in a tent uh, somewhere on the other side of the world. Which is lucky because that is exactly where Simon is right now. He's done many incredible adventures in his life, including that crazy 15,000-mile cycle and sail from China to London, as well as a really cool project called Earth Cycle, which is out now on Amazon as a TV series all about slow travel and connecting with the natural world whilst undertaking preposterously long bike rides. That seems to be a theme because... Right now, he's on another preposterously long bike ride. It's an incredible adventure. He's cycling the length of Great Britain, all the way from the Shetland Isles in the north to the far southern tip of the country. It's a fantastic project. I am really enjoying following him. And if you're listening in real time, October, November 2020, he is out there right now cycling. So please do follow along with that adventure. He posts really great videos in photography every day. He's a really inspiring, great guy. And I know you're going to like hanging out with him. His Instagram. Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook is at Simon W.I. Parker. But cycling the length of Britain, okay, it's a big adventure, but it's pretty sensible, right? I mean, pretty standard. What we're about to embark on now is altogether, how should I say this, more Monty Python than that. 
So the rickshaw run is a kind of anti-establishment tour operator sort of travel experience. And the idea is that you fly to India and you pick up one of these three-wheeled, seven-horsepower rickshaws and you and a group of your mates head off on what they call an unroute. I love this concept, but you need a little bit of background to understand it. So I'm going to read you now how the adventurists describe themselves, their mission statement, if you like. Their owner is a guy called Mr. Tom, who's super cool. And this is what he says. We're fighting to make the world less boring. Our planet used to slap us about the face cheeks with iron fists of adventure every day. Maps had edges to walk off. Men feared the monsters that lurked in the deep. Whole continents lay undiscovered. But now, the entire surface of the Earth has been scanned by satellites and shoveled into your mobile phone, tagged with twattery about which restaurant serves the best mocha latte frappuccite. Getting lost and in trouble is no longer an occupational hazard of walking to the market. It is an art form, one we strive to perfect. We live to find ways to make the world a bit more difficult, to bring chaos into our over-sanitized lives, to create adventures where you don't know what will happen tomorrow, or even if you'll make it. Because we think there's no greater moment than those seconds as you leap into an abyss of uncertainty and disaster. That abyss is the unroute. The idea is that as long as you get from A to B in a kind of vague timescale, whatever happens in between and the ups and the downs and the ins and the outs, whatever happens, well, that's just all part of the whole experience. They don't want to try and um, map out what the experience should be for you as an individual. They provide the vehicle, they provide the tool to facilitate this adventure for you. But beyond that, all of the stupid, dangerous stuff that happens in between is the exact adventure. It's the unknowing. It's the going round a corner and seeing an elephant stood in front of you. It's a going round another corner and seeing some guy moving 500 head of cattle across a motorway. It's being overtaken by ginormous articulated lorries as you're playing chicken with another couple of articulated lorries wondering where on earth are you going to be. It's feeling like you are dodging death on an almost hourly basis. That is the enthralling and exhilarating element of this adventure. And um, myself and four of my old mates, we decided to, to head off to India and give this a go. And we set off on this crazy adventure to zigzag through India, two and a half thousand miles, all the way from the northernmost point of India, kind of almost in the shadow of the Himalayas, all the way down to almost the southern point of India, down in steamy Kerala. That is a crazy, crazy route. It literally follows the entire east coast of India along the Bay of Bengal, all the way from the edge of the Himalayas near Bhutan and northern Bangladesh, down to the far southern tip in Kerala and the city of Kochi on the coast. If that was on normal roads, that would be a big drive. It would be a mission. But in India, it's basically a death-defying stunt because he's not even joking or exaggerating what Indian roads are like at all, by the way. In fact... If anything, he's watering it down. Because here's some statistics. In 2019, one year alone, 150,000 people died from road traffic fatalities in India. 
one person every four minutes. About four times as many as the states, even though they have roughly the same amount of cars. So what could possibly go wrong? If someone said to you a selection of the most stupid things most people could choose to do in their life, it would be to drive through India. And then to add a small asterisk to that stupidity, it would be drive a three-wheeled rickshaw that easily gets knocked over. Tom from The Adventurists describes the rickshaw rather honestly as a marginally glorified lawnmower. They don't go very fast, he writes. They don't go around corners very well. But by the gods, driving a rickshaw brings a smile to the face. That they do, especially once you pimp your ride. This episode of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path and living life to the fullest. Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle built for adventures everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We, once again, this ties into how naively and underprepared we'd gone throughout this whole thing. We'd naively not sent in a design for them to design our uh, rickshaws because everyone else had taken it quite seriously and uh, we hadn't really done that. So I remember we turned up and they said, right, what's your design? Because they have local artists who will paint it for you and then everyone else is wearing a fancy dress. So I remember perhaps we just came up with a rather ridiculous idea to dress up as Morris dancers. So they painted a few pictures of Morris dancers on the rickshaws. Morris dancers, for those of you who don't know, are possibly the least pimp thing on the planet. It is the traditional folk dance of England. And without getting too into it, it basically looks like a little girl's nursery school dance with hopping and skipping and bells and tapping sticks. But it's performed without the slightest hint of irony by fully grown men. It is the Monty Python Ministry of Silly Walks equivalent of dancing. So the fact that they've chosen to dedicate their rickshaw run to Morris dancing is wholly appropriate and absolutely brilliant. So the start of the rickshaw run is in a place called Shillong in the northeastern state of Assam. 
and you have to drive out of that top corner to get into what we were referring to the Indian mainland because it was this kind of annexed piece of India which was up to the right hand side. So we had to fly into there and the setup of the ritual run is, is quite informal. Basically you go to a car park on the outskirts of the city. They give you this rickshaw and the keys and they basically just give you a five minute tutorial as to how to drive this thing. And then once you've done that, everyone puts on fancy dress, you get drunk and then wake up the next morning and then you're expected to drive two and a half thousand miles to the other side of India. Looking around on that morning, I remember looking at everyone's faces as though everyone was thinking to themselves, what on earth have we let ourselves into? Why didn't we just go and sit on a beach in Goa or head off backpacking in Thailand? Why have we done this? But an adventure like this is almost like a, a hard class A drug for travellers. Most travellers go in, you know, with the Thailand, the Australia, the backpacking around, the getting a bit drunk promiscuous sex, that sort of thing. But then as you develop through your 20s and 30s, you realise that that isn't exactly going to cut it. It's there like your gateway drugs to something like this. And then all of a sudden you find yourself in a rickshaw thinking to yourself, what on earth am I doing? I've got to now drive to the other side of India. Why did it get to this level of preposterousness that I need this to be that next big fix? That next big fix... I've never thought of traveling in Class A drugs in the same basket like that before, but it kind of makes sense. I'd actually go one step further, though. This isn't like doing Class A drugs. This is more like taking acid and going to a pantomime. And although I can't quite attest to what that's like per se, I did once do a story on Hunter S. Thompson and in a moment of madness thought I should try and do the whole assignment in his gonzo style ended up having a panic attack at a classical music concert, having eaten a rather strong brownie I shouldn't have. And metaphorically, that is exactly what Simon and his pals were about to do. If traveling is a drug, they were about to take peyote and go to the circus. So just imagine what's running through their heads as they line up on the start line, glorified lawnmower engines revving, ready to race off into the wild unroots of India and begin the wackiest and most dangerous race on the planet. The morning that we turned up, most people had quite significant hangovers from the night before because I think they were just trying to steady their nerves in some fashion. And basically everyone just did a few, few laps of this car park as they were playing techno or drum and bass from a few crackly speakers and uh, essentially everyone just beat their horns and just headed into the city. You can imagine it, right? Smoke from the tyres spinning, horns blaring, engines revving, the crowd has gathered, hearts beating, gripping the steering wheel, ready to tear off into the dusty Indian open roads as fast as possible. Well, not quite. So it's all quite anticlimactic because all that happens is you, you do a few few laps around this car park and then everyone just ends up in a in a traffic jam about half a mile down the road. That's the problem with starting races in the middle of a congested city. You can just imagine them, can't you? Shouting at the gates, ready to go, and then... Oh, sitting in traffic, feeling a little silly. But feeling silly is something that Simon and his crew would have to get used to. 
And then slowly everyone just tries to get themselves out of Shillong, this city of about 200,000 people, which by Indian standards is a tiny village. But really, by any British or American standards, this is still quite a big conurbation. So you're trying to get yourself out. And then this crazy monsoonal storm happened about 30 minutes into the adventure and we were getting absolutely soaked. We managed to just get out of Shillong into the foothills outside the town. And I remember all of a sudden the rickshaw just broke down. It stopped and we were in this torrents, this, these lakes of water. We were thinking, what on earth are we doing? We had to sit on the side of the road, tinkering around with this, with this engine. It quickly dawned on us that none of us had absolutely any vaguest idea how to do anything with mechanics. So we're staring at this engine, twizzling around spark plugs and putting dipsticks in and out and none of us had the foggiest idea as to anything that was going on. We started thinking to ourselves, right, we've got to drive to the other side of India. None of us know even know how to change a tyre. And we spent about two hours sitting there wondering what on earth we were going to do. And we flagged down a taxi driver. And this taxi driver took pity upon us. And he got out and he, he, he got a, a reed off the side of the road, a piece of wood, and he dipped it into our petrol tank. And he looked at them and without a hint of irony said, Sir, this is a common problem with rickshaws. It's run out of petrol. Good start, lads. We must have broken down probably about 15 or 20 times over the course of two weeks. And I would say that 12 of those times, it was because we'd just run out of petrol. Um, So we got to a point after about a thousand miles into the adventure that we were filling up two litre bottles of Coca-Cola with petrol and we were just lining the back of the um, of the rickshaw. So not only were we very naively and very stupidly driving to the other side of India, but we were now encasing ourselves in dozens of litres of highly flammable liquid. Like I say, what could possibly go wrong? Well, apart from setting themselves on fire, quite right. Because one of the things about the Unroute philosophy is that useful things like iPhones and Google Maps are not allowed. You could sneak one in, of course, but they're discouraged. There is no abyss with a 5G parachute in your back pocket. So instead, the boys brought a pocket map of India. I mean, if there was ever a time to fork out for the full map, this was it. But no. Our very simple way of navigating would be that we would try and avoid cities which were in bold ink, in a bold font, because we presumed that they would be too large for us to try and navigate through on our in our tiny rickshaw. It was as simple as that. We would try and zigzag around places which were in a big font on the atlas. Um, often, though, in the context of India, which is just a huge country and everything in India is huge on a massive scale. Often we'd come undone by this because even sometimes when we thought we were going through what would be a a small city or a small town because it looked very small on the map, on some occasions we ended up having to go through rush hour in cities that none of us had ever heard of, which had populations of well over a million people. And we were in a, a vehicle that none of us really knew how to drive. 
it's just it was a crazy it was a crazy way of trying to navigate but actually looking back it's those mishaps which actually create all the best experiences winding up in in towns and villages which we never really planned to go to was i think exactly what they're trying to get at with this whole unroute concept when you really try and go from one point to another you create a very straight line on both adventures but also in life but actually when you're zigzagging around the periphery of those adventures that's when you find the most interesting experiences that's the point isn't it the internet is an amazing tool of course mobile phones are an amazing tool but they're almost too amazing we can research things to such an extent that we can kill any possibility of spontaneity and when traveling those spontaneous things those unexpected things are always the greatest adventures so we skirted the north east of india around bangladesh and then we started to follow the contours of the bay of bengal on the east coast gradually as we dropped into into the lowlands and then onto the coast it just became stiflingly hot but it was quite nice in those first few days just to experience the the coolness of the tea plantations and a significantly more muslim mosques as well up in that northeastern corner where bangladesh is and then gradually you drop down and you're you're surrounded more by hindu temples and you, and you really get a better feel that way when you are traveling across such a, a vast distance of the the changing demographics the changing ethnical and um theological demographics of somewhere like india by seeing it very very slowly you would never see that if you're on a on a plane you would never fully perceive that you never really fully perceive that from a guidebook but when you see it with your own eyes on a daily hourly basis you really get to see how how a country is changing before your eyes minute by minute That's got to be one of the most amazing things about doing a journey like this. Any slow travel trip. Remember, they're topping out at 14 miles an hour. The pace of it gives you a sense of scale of a country in which just flying over from one place to the other or closing your eyes in the back of a car could never do. And it really is a beautiful country, that northeastern corner, the state of Assam. It has gorgeous national parks, there's rhinos, there's ancient mosques. You're buttressing up against the foothills of the Himalayas. And then as they gradually made their way south into mainland India as they were calling it, they followed the coastline of the Bay of Bengal, the largest bay in the world, stopping off at beautiful beaches along the way. And the further they went, they slowly saw the country changing. India is a huge country with a huge and diverse population. And because they were forced to travel slowly, they saw it evolve and unfurl before them slowly too. And because they had to avoid main roads and big cities, they saw a side of it that very few travelers do. In India, perhaps more so than anywhere else in the world, it kind of felt like we could just turn up in a town at 6 or 7 o'clock in the evening and just ask around to see where on earth we could stay very often people would just say oh well you can you can stay in my outhouse for for the night and give me 10 dollars or something or are oh, you hungry that's fine um give me 5 bucks and you can uh, you can crash in my restaurant or something like that so we had roll mats and we had kind of not even sleeping bags really we just kind of draped 
whatever we could over the top of us and just got on with it really. Hopefully sometimes on these occasions that these people would have um, showers or sort of buckets of water that we could cool ourselves off with. But beyond that, we couldn't really be that choosy. And actually the best experiences come from turning up and, and meeting random people who just accept the fact that you are a, a weary traveller who's just turned up in their village who needs somewhere to, to bed down for the night. And that's a very universal historic, timely experience as nomadic human beings throughout thousands of years, that's always been happening. And in India, perhaps more than anywhere else in all of my adventures around the world, did I feel like that was that was a possibility. On a human level, there was just such a degree of intrigue because we were so off the beaten track, entering towns and villages which... I suspect had never really or don't usually have an influx of, of outsiders. India can be quite an overwhelming place generally in terms of, you know, sometimes you go to cities and people are so intrigued by you that you get huge crowds of people who are just intrigued by what you look like and your mannerisms. But in some of the villages and the towns that we were entering, unannounced, we would be surrounded by hundreds and hundreds of people at the start that was quite overwhelming but then after a few days we just warmed up you just learn that some people and some different cultures show their affection in different ways and generally speaking Indian people are just a lot more gregarious and, and outgoing and, and a lot more tactile than perhaps we are used to. I think that's really well said. India can be overwhelming. There can be so many people and you are a figure of interest and oftentimes that can be unnerving because we're not used to that kind of attention. I went there in my 20s, as I said, with my wife now, who's then my girlfriend, and it was like being with a Hollywood star. No one wanted selfies with me, but believe me, they were definitely wanting selfies with her. And in the beginning, it felt wary, like we had to be on our guard. But eventually, Simon's right, you just warm up to it and you realize that this is just curiosity. It's just interest and it's just a different culture. And it comes back to something we talk about in the show all the time, that by and large, the world is a kinder and more generous and safer place than we are led to believe. And if you go into it with your heart open, expecting kindness and giving that kindness back, Usually, the world repays you with friendship and incredible experiences that you couldn't have had anywhere else. And that's exactly what happened to Simon. Because of the body clocks that we were trying to have on this journey, we were trying to get up very, very early and we were trying to drive as many hours of daylight as possible. And this meant that often we were driving into villages and towns at exactly the same time that many young children were on their way to school. So I remember every morning it used to be a, a nice thing to do to wave at all the small kids who were on their way to school. And it was just a, a nice way of gently waking ourselves up and you know, sharing smiles with local people. And I remember on one particular day, once again, we'd broken down in a small town. And this time we hadn't just run out of petrol, but uh, we had something quite significantly wrong with one of our, uh, one of our uh, rickshaws. And um, we had to wait for at least half a day for the repair to happen, at which time a group of people had found out that we were waiting outside a mechanics. And they came and said, 
would you like to come to school with us? Would you like to come and have a look look around? And of course, we just jumped at the opportunity because under normal circumstances, you can't just wander into a school and ask to have a look around. And uh, they said to us, would you like to come to school for a couple of hours? And we went there and we played games with the local children. Um, A couple of my mates were brave enough to have a go at Kabaddi. Kabaddi is brilliant. It's basically like playground tag, but played by brawly athletic blokes holding hands. They actually do hold hands in it. But it's surprisingly gripping to watch. It's now the fastest growing sport in India, the second most watched sport after cricket, of course, which is more of a religion than a sport in India. And the rules are really simple. Basically, you get two teams of seven players facing each other in a big square, and the players take turns running across and trying to tag one of the opposite team and then make it back to their side before all seven of those other guys just basically jump on top of them. And that's why they're holding hands, to try and form a ring around them as they tag each other. I'll put a video up on the webpage so you can check it out. I think it's actually really good. It's really fun to watch. But at the same time, I couldn't quite shake the feeling that when Ben Stiller finally does a sequel to Dodgeball, The Underdog Story, which, by the way, full disclosure, is the most embarrassing movie I've ever cried at. Long story. Kabaddi will be a prime candidate. If there's anything all of us can become bonded over it's probably the shared desire to be educated and 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 educate ourselves and and actually being able to share a few a few words in english and just be part of that school's morning it was just a, a really nice experience they took loads of photos goodness knows what happened to them maybe we're still up on the walls but it was a, an amazing experience and what something we'll never forget Simon says that as a journalist and travel writer, and also just as a traveler himself, he's always shunned the big sites. He's not interested in the Taj Mahal or the Empire State Building. It's this kind of thing that matters to Simon. And it's this kind of thing that an adventure like this uniquely provides. To turn up at a school in the middle of nowhere and just have a couple of hours spending time with those people, connecting, is what real travel is all about. Exploration is just opening your mind and holding out your hand. But he also had a secret weapon. Personally, I am addicted to cricket. I'm a a big cricket fan. And we made the decision that we were going to kind of the cradle of modern cricket, India, where cricket really is an obsession. It's what they call a religion. And we made the decision to take a cricket bat, take some tennis balls. I'm just going to jump in here really quickly because I'm sure all of you have heard of cricket before, but some of you, I'm thinking particularly of my American friends, may not completely understand the rules. Don't worry, no one really does. But you don't need to know the details. All I'll say is this. Cricket is like a more complicated version of baseball, which can take five days to play and usually ends in a draw. If that sounds insane, it's because... It is insane. You have to be born to it. And England, like so many things, well, we invented the sport, we were masters of it for a little while, and then rapidly got overtaken by everyone that we introduced the sport to, including India, where it continues to be a national obsession. So as far as icebreakers go, bringing that bat and ball was genius. Every evening we would have a few beers and try and unwind on a beach or wherever we could find, and we always used to start playing cricket. At first, People living locally used to think to themselves, who the hell are these guys playing cricket in the middle of our village? They've just turned up unannounced and they used to just kind of keep us at arm's length. 
But then what you realise is that something like cricket, a global obsession, has such a, a universal appeal. Over a billion people around the world are obsessed by the sport. And gradually, a few onlookers would come and have a go, come and have a bowl. And in no time, we'd be playing these games of cricket with about 100 people. Then someone would say to us, do you want to come and eat at our place for the evening? Do you have a place to stay? So actually, if you find that common ground with strangers from any culture, from any walk of life, with something like cricket or music or food or goodness knows what, it can become that foundation to build a relationship. By this time, they had travelled close to 2,000 miles. They had travelled all the way from the foothills of the Himalayas in the far north of India through nine states, and they were just about to cross the hill plantations of the Western Ghats and enter Kerala and the home straight to the finish line in Kochi on the southwestern tip of the country. They had had so many amazing experiences. They had seen a side of the country very rarely glimpsed by outsiders. They were blown away by the hospitality and welcome they received. They were thrashed at cricket many times, but all in good fun. But it was also hard, and the stress of those Indian roads was beginning to take its toll. We were so wound up with all the adrenaline and this desire to get from A to B that it all just seemed like a bit of a strange, melancholic dream. We would be driving along long, straight roads in the middle of India, and we would basically be playing chicken with oncoming vehicles, because unlike in the US or in Europe, where you have a distinct left and right side of the road, in somewhere like India, where the, the, the roads and the highways are significant worse shape, basically people just drive on the better side of the road. But very, very often that means that all oncoming traffic is on one side. So I, I remember on a couple of occasions we had to swerve off of the road just to avoid being killed by, by massive lorries. We would drive along on these long straight roads and it would look as though there was a, a heat mirage rising off the asphalt. But then as we'd get closer, we'd realise that there would be thousands of goats or cows just in the middle of the road, which we would then have to weave in and out of just to just to try and avoid them. But this was a totally normal thing. The local farmer is totally obliged and allowed to just move across these huge roads. And, and that is just something in India which you, you learn to accept because the rules of life are just not so set in stone there or they just have their own way of moving and you just have to go with it. The country isn't going to change to you, you have to change to the country. That's good advice, isn't it? The country isn't going to change for you. You have to change for the country. Even, in this case, if it meant rolling the dice with your life, which he did do. Simon says there were at least a dozen times when they came face to face with real danger on those roads and one time when they passed the remains of someone who wasn't quite so lucky. So it was tough. But when they finally crossed over the Western Ghats and that finish line was in sight, it was all worth it. What I remember most about heading into Kerala was just how, how lush it was. I remember there being a lot more elephants, and especially wild elephants in that region of India as well. Um, and just, just it was a, it was just a very lush and verdant place. Um, I remember the sense of sheer relief that it was over. It was one of those adventures that 
We were very glad that we went on it, but we were also very glad that it was coming to an end. And I don't think that is always a negative thing. I, I think that the most challenging parts of our life and the most challenging adventures must come to an end. I've experienced that when I've sailed across the Pacific or cycled massive distances for weeks or months on end. For me, an adventure really begins right at the end because it becomes this, this thing which matures and evolves within you over time. So although that adventure only lasted two, two and a half weeks, the experiences I had on that have allowed me to become a hopefully a more interesting and patient person for it. Um, and often the great hardships of adventures like this, whenever you're stressing out with goodness knows what in life, you can always think to yourself, well, I'm not covered in grease on the side of an Indian road trying to work out where we're going to sleep that night. You have to embrace those experiences when they're happening. And that's not always easy to do in those moments when we're cold and wet and tired and fed up and just about to be run over by lorries on the wrong side of the road and herds of cattle. It's easy to be fed up. But that is also what true adventure is all about. Tom from The Adventurous writes, Adventure is a word that has had its meaning stamped into the mud of indifference. It has been boil washed by marketing shits into meaning holidays without a beach. But adventure isn't a place or even an activity. Adventure is not knowing what will happen to you tomorrow or in the next 10 minutes. Adventure is setting forth in a spirit of ignorance. It's getting lost. It's getting stuck. It's getting in trouble. The rickshaw run is the stage upon which chaos can be wrought. They made it to the finish line. They survived. They encountered the unknown and embraced the spirit of true adventure. And yes, that's what's so amazing about this trip and the whole spirit that it entails. To challenge yourself is admirable. But to be able to laugh at yourself while doing it is truly enlightened. Monty Python would have been proud. Thank you, Simon, for taking us on this crazy adventure. Remember, you can follow Simon's current adventure, Cycling Across the Length of Britain, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, at Simon W.I. Parker. His website is simonwparker.co.uk. And do check out that EarthCycle TV series as well. It's really well put together, and it's just out now on Amazon. Big shout also to Mr. Tom and the Chaos Agents of Real Adventure, the Adventurists. So glad I found them. They're bringing some crazy adventures to the U.S. next year in 2021, and I am planning to do whatever I can to be on one. I hope to see you there. Find out more at theadventurist.com. Finally, thank you most of all to you guys for listening. Remember to spread the word, share with a friend, a fellow explorer. We are building a community of people that love the outdoors, that love adventure, that love exploring this amazing planet of ours. And if that sounds like you, you're in the right place. Come back, hang out. We have some more incredible adventures coming up very soon. And remember, being an explorer is more than just seeing the world. It's a way of seeing the world. Being an explorer means going through the world with an open mind, an open heart and an extended hand. And that's important because the more we look for wonder in the world, the more the wonder of the world becomes a part of who we are. Dare to be truly alive.